Hi, friends. So the Gospel of Matthew, we believe that it was written by Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. But who was Matthew? We know that he was a tax collector. But what I'm going to say next, I, I can't prove any of this, but I just, I think it kind of makes sense, right? What do we know about a, a tax collector, a person named Matthew? Well, we know that that sort of means then that Matthew was a Roman sympathizer. That he was one of those Jews who decided, well, if you can't beat him, you might as well join him. Uh, maybe Matthew still had hope for the day when his Jewish land would be freed from the hands of the empire. Sure, he hoped that God's reign and rule would spread out from Israel to the edges of the world. But, but what do you do when reality bumps against hope? Right? When the Roman soldiers are exploiting you, they're taking your money. Like eventually, sometimes, isn't it easier just to go with the flow? Why would you continue to fight against the empire? Isn't life easier if you just give in? Go with the flow. And so Matthew becomes a tax collector. He immerses himself into this world of power, of money, of influence. And sure, he isn't particular, particularly liked by his neighbors, but hey, at least his neighbors have money like he does. He has money, he has some comfort, he has some food every day. Life could be worse. Until Matthew meets Jesus. When Matthew meets Jesus, that encounter transformed his life. It led him on this path of downward mobility. He gives up his money and his title and his power and his secure job and the habits of his old way of life. That Everything is transformed as he follows Jesus. In his gospel, we see Matthew giving the testimony of his transformation. In his life and the lives of those who meet Jesus, we see this radical change that comes when the kingdom of God breaks into the realities of our world and, and the way it changes us. In his gospel, Matthew so far has introduced us to Jesus, the King, the Savior, God with us. He's introduced us to these competing powers in the world, this power of empire versus the power of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And now he wants us to hear a key message of the kingdom. Uh, it, it comes out of the mouth of this crazy desert-dwelling man living in the, on the traditional diet of poor desert dwellers of locusts and honey. It's this John, this John the Baptist. Now, just an interesting side note from history. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus actually mentions John the Baptist in his writing. He praises John for his piety and suspects that Herod had him killed because of his popularity and the risk that John was to presenting like a social upheaval. And so he, he got rid of him. Uh, it's, it's interesting, too, just that two of the four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' birth. Only two out of four. But all four of our Gospels tell us about John the Baptist. He, he is key to the story of Jesus. And John the Baptist says this forerunner of Jesus preparing the way. And so John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it begins reading in the Common English Bible. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea, announcing, Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. He was the one of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke when he said, The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path, path straight. Other translations like the NLT uh, translate verse 2 a little bit more traditionally. Uh, Repent of your sins and turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is near. 
First observation I want to make is just that using this language of kingdom of heaven does obscure for us here and now the, the reality of the inbreaking of God's kingdom here and now. The kingdom of heaven should not be combined or compressed with this idea of thinking about heaven, about what happens to us after we die. Rather, the kingdom of heaven for John and Jesus is both very, it's very clearly about here and now. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world. It has already begun to be experienced and lived out here. The kingdom of heaven is any place in which Jesus is king and people are living under his rule. And so this college on the Baptist is not future, like not way, way future. It is a something that is already now present and beginning to break into our world. The second thing we need to consider is this word repent. Uh, I like the Common English Bible. I love that invitation to us to change our hearts and lives. I, I don't know about you. I don't use the word repent very often. Uh, when I'm trying to teach my kids how to behave, I don't say to my girls, repent of teasing your brother. I say, girls, I, I need you to change the way you're treating your brother, right? Uh, and, and more than just having my kids stop fighting, as amazing as that would be, I, I most desperately want for my children, I want them to have hearts that love their siblings. I, I don't long for good behavior from my children. I long for them to genuinely care about each other, to change the way in which they care for each other in their hearts that will lead to an expression of different behavior. So change your heart, change your lives. To, to repent is to experience a process of transformation and to become someone new, kind of like Matthew, the tax collector. Now, let's be really clear. When we read this uh, first 12 verses of Matthew 3, it seems like a really tough passage. John is going to say things like to the Pharisees and Sadducees, You brood of snakes! Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove it by the ways you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Verse 10 until the end, he says, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire." And so there is harsh language in this passage. Uh, these scriptures have been used in many places and many times to scare people into obedience to the kingdom of God. We read these passages, we hear eternal fire, we hear wrath, we hear judgment. And sometimes, at least in my own life, it feels like these scriptures have been used as a tool of fear to, to keep me in line, to, to, to um, make me believe something. But I just want to offer to you an, another perspective, another way of reading this passage that's actually really beautiful, really redemptive, a healing invitation. Because th this, old, this language of repent, of turning, of, of returning, is found throughout the Old Testament. It's common. And consider something like Isaiah 44, verse 22. Here God says, I swept away your rebellions like a cloud and your sins like fog. Return to me because I have redeemed you. 
Or one of my favorite Old Testament passages is Joel 2.13. And it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, very patient and full of faithful love, and ready to forgive. So what I want us to hear is that this call to repent, to change our hearts and lives, is not a call of shame or guilt or fear or condemnation for everything you have done badly. It is a call to turn and see God as he is, as merciful and compassionate and very patient and full of faithful love and ready to forgive. What, what, while we could continue down a road of self-destruction. Why would we keep going down that way when God is calling us home to a merciful embrace? To return or to repent is to turn to God and find grace and love and life and liberation. It is to turn towards divine love and embrace. Now, to be sure, there is a negative side effect uh, not a negative side of that as well, right? To not turn is to continue on a path of destruction. Romans speaks of, of God turning people over to their own selfish desires. The reality is that left unchecked, our desires turn in on themselves and we, we reap these our, our own sowing of destruction. We, we bring all kinds of ruin to our lives and to the world around us. Now, rebellion against God carries with it its own inherent consequences and we will reap those one day. But can I just say that dis despite all of that, the, the positive way to say it is you turn towards a God who loves you and is ready to embrace you and forgive you and welcome you. And that sounds really, really good. D despite maybe times and places where the church has probably overused or misused the words judgment and wrath, let's, let's be also clear that, that judgment is not a bad thing. Uh, judgment and justice in the hands of a good, loving, all-knowing God is something that doesn't need to be feared, but is actually really good news, especially to those people for whom justice has been denied. Listen to Psalm 96, verses 10, 11, and 13. The psalmist writes, Tell the nations, the Lord rules. Yes, he set the world firmly in place. It won't be shaken. He will judge all people fairly. Let heaven celebrate. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea and everything in it roar. Let the countryside and everything in it celebrate. Then all the trees in the forest too will shout out joyfully before the Lord because he is coming. He is coming to establish justice in the world rightly. He will establish justice among all people fairly. So there's this universal cry of joy when God brings justice. Anna Case Winters writes, um, Looking at judgment in another light, there is a sense in which it is not to be dreaded, but rather hope to be hoped for. Divine judgment, when it comes, will be a setting right. It has been said that without judgment, there is no justice. People who are victims of injustice long for their day in court. The reader of these texts cannot help calling to mind the innocents who were slaughtered by Herod's decree in chapter 2. And so when we remember just the previous chapter in Matthew and the story of Herod killing these innocent children out of his own fear and anger and ambition, of course we would long for justice and judgment. Of course God must set things right. Uh, the pastor, Carlos Rodriguez, has said this incredible, challenging quote. It always, always sticks with me. He says, when we're not hungry for justice, it's usually because we're too full with privilege. That one sticks with me. I wonder how much of my own discomfort with language of judgment and wrath is because of the privilege I've had in my life.
the safety, the comfort, the ease. I, I don't want to lose the power of the good news that God establishes justice in this world rightly. And rather than fear, Psalm 96 invites us to celebrate that God will establish his justice among all people fairly. And for those who are aligned with Jesus in his kingdom, there is nothing to fear. For those who sow injustice and evil in the world, there is good news for us that the kingdom of God will set things right. This one last observation from Matthew 3, 1 to 12, I want to give us today. Uh, it's just that I want you to notice this language and metaphor that John the Baptist is using. They're all related to agriculture. The images here are of tending and of harvest. It, there is a tree that doesn't produce fruit. There is the separation of the wheat and chaff or, or husks. Uh, the farmer would used to have all their wheat in a big pile, the wheat and the husks on them. And, and the farmer would take his shovel or winnowing fork and he would stick it in and he'd throw it up in the air and the wind would come and it would blow away the, the husks and the good wheat would fall to the ground. And then they would sweep up all the husks and burn them and take the good wheat into the barn. What we see in this passage is that God is doing what every good grower or gardener or farmer would do. God is preserving and perfecting his crop. God is working and tilling the, and pruning and purifying us. I think it's really wise for us not to strain the analogy here of the wheat and the husks. Uh, I'm, ner I'm nervous to say I am wheat and other people are husks uh, and that are just going to get burned up, right? Because let's be honest, there's a lot of both of those in each of us. I have some wheat and I have some chaff. I need God to do his tending and his pruning and his purifying in me. Verse 11 is interesting. John says I, he will, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Greek word for Holy Spirit is the same word as wind. And so in this next analogy that John uses, there is the wind that separates what is valuable and what is waste, what is good and kept and what is destroyed. Oh, I need the wind of God's Spirit to blow through my life, shaking loose the empty husks and saving what is valuable. I need God to be refining, or be a refining fire, purifying out the bad. The Old Testament prophet Malachi said, but who will be able to stand up to that coming? Who can survive his appearance? He'll be like a white, he'll be like white hot from the smelter's furnace. He'll be like the strongest lye soap at the laundry. He'll take his place as a refiner of silver, as a cleanser of dirty clothes. He'll scrub the Levite priests, priests clean, refine them like gold and silver until they are fit for God. First Corinthians 3, 12 to 13 says, So whether someone builds on top of the foundation Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will be clearly shown. The day will make it clear because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And so these examples are actually a little bit more hopeful than John the Baptist offers. In, in Malachi, we go through fire, but there is still silver in the end. We may experience the rough washing of the strongest soaps and cleaners, but the result is this clean shirt. And all of this points to a God who judges, like Alfred North Whitehead says, the judgment of a tenderness which loses nothing that can be saved. It is also the judgment of wisdom, which uses what in the temporal world is mere wreckage. He is the poet of the world with tender patience, leading it by his vision of truth and beauty and goodness. Love that line. The judgment of a tenderness, 
that which loses nothing that can be saved. That's my hope. That's my hope for my own life, that God in his tenderness will judge and shake out the chaff from the wheat so that there is good left in me. And so then the questions, the invitation for you and I in response to this belief that God came to us in Jesus and that Jesus has unveiled his kingdom and that he is coming again to bring it into fullness and glory, that Jesus is coming to bring justice and joy to the whole world. How will you get ready for that day? Where do you have roads that need straightening out? Where do you have fires that need to be lit to burn away the rubbish in his path? What dead trees need to be cut down? And who needs to be invited into repent, to turn from the path that they're on and to discover the divine embrace of the God who is merciful and compassionate and very patient and full of faithful love and ready to forgive. Grace and peace.